Let's open our Bibles to Ruth chapter number 1 this morning. Ruth chapter number 1. What a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. I'm thrilled that you're here today. Trust that God has already been working in your heart this morning. He's been working in mine. I'm glad there's a place we can come and worship, aren't you? A place we can hear from the Lord. A place we can visit with the Lord. A place that God can work in our hearts and minds. I appreciate the Lord and His goodness and grace. Ruth chapter number 1 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We're going to read the entirety of this chapter. Don't get nervous. It's not Psalms 119. It's not very long. And uh, But Ruth chapter number 1, verse number 1. The Word of God says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why call ye then why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter in law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be here, Lord. Thank you for every person that is gathered in this place, Lord. They're here because they desire you in their lives, Lord. Uh, there could be some that don't know Christ as their Savior, but they're not here because they're uninterested in you. They're here because they want to know how they can know how to get to heaven and how to know Christ as their Savior. And I pray that you'd show them clearly through your word today that you love them, that you died for them, that you can save them here and now for all of eternity. Lord, there's probably some here today that have come with broken hearts that need to be mended. Lord, some that have come maybe with backslidness in the heart that must be driven out. But Lord, whatever the need is, I know you're up to the task. So I'm asking you, God, to work in their hearts. I'm asking you to soften their hearts. I'm asking you to penetrate their minds with your word, Lord, and for you to work effectually in their lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what's been done. We thank you for what we know you're going to do, and we praise you for it. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the book of Ruth is a book that, though it bears the name Ruth, it really, first and foremost, is not about Ruth. 
When you read through this book of the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with it, it is the story of this young Moabitess girl that is brought back through the providence of God to the land of Judah. And there, God crosses her path. She is a widow. And God crosses her path with a man by the name of Boaz. Boaz is a wealthy man, and he is a kinsman unto uh, Ruth through Naomi, her mother-in-law. Now, what that meant in the days of the Bible is when a uh, person's husband, when a woman's husband died, uh, the uh, person that was the kinsman, that was the closest in relation to the deceased, had the legal right to buy the property before anyone else could of that person. But it came with strings attached. If uh, that person left a widow, that widow was childless. They also had, if the widow desired it, an obligation to marry that widow and to raise up children in the stead of or in the name of their deceased family member. And those children would inherit that property and it would retain in the possession of the widow until such time that she died. God brings Ruth out of uh, pagan darkness, out of spiritual blindness, into the land of Israel and shows her uh, the grace of God, crosses her paths with this man by the name of Boaz. Boaz marries her and God just weaves a beautiful tapestry of a story that no human heart could even devise. Now's the time, ladies, to swoon, all right? <laughs> ladies love the book of Ruth because they think it's about love. Man, it ain't about love. It's about property rights. Somebody say amen to that. And so it is a story that is really first and foremost about the Lord and His plan. Can I tell you, God's plans are the best plans. You want your life to be the best it can be? Surrender yourself to the Lord and let His will become the, the path of your life. Because God wrote this story. And man, I could I don't have time to, but I could just stop here and tell story after story after story of beautiful things that God has done and amazing things that God has performed. Hey, uh, the Bible says He hath made all things beautiful in His own time. If we'll trust Him, He'll do more with our life than we ever could. So first and foremost, it is a story about Ruth or about uh, the Lord and His plan. Second, it is a story about Ruth and her promotion. Certainly, Ruth is not a minor bit player in this story. She is one of the leading individuals. The book bears her name, and undoubtedly, it was from her heart and her memory that the Holy Ghost uh, drew to record uh, the record of what takes place here. Uh, her story of how she came from the darkness of unbelief, of pagan worship, of having no comprehension of who God was, and God in His mercy, God in His grace, God in His love reached down in the Moab's darkness and plucked this woman and saved her soul and made her part of the family of God. I mean that figuratively and literally because in fact uh, her and Boaz would have uh, a son by the name of Salmon. Salmon would have a son by the name of Jesse. Jesse would have a son by the name of David and David would ascend to the throne of Israel. And through the lineage of David, the Messiah would be born. The Savior of all creation would be born. She literally got plucked out of obscurity and darkness and put into the family of God. Man, what a picture of the grace of God. You know, that's what God does in your life, mine too. There we are sitting in darkness, man. We don't even know if there's anything to worship or if there is what we should worship. And God shines the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts and shows us we are lost but that we can be saved by His grace. So it's a book about the Lord and His plan, and it is a book about Ruth and her promotion. But when we read chapter number 1, we really don't hear much about the Lord. We hear a little bit more about Ruth, but there is another individual that features prominently in chapter number 1, and it is a woman by the name of Naomi. Naomi is the matriarch of this family her and her husband Elimelech go down into Moab with their two sons, Malon and Chilion. And there they dwell for ten years. And uh, in that period of time, the Bible tells us that all of her husband and both of her sons die and perish. And she is left there alone, only her and these two daughters-in-law. She comes back. She leaves Bethlehem a joyful woman. She comes back a broken individual. It would not be inappropriate to say that third, this is a book about Naomi and her pain. And it's that that I want to preach to you about for a few moments this morning. Naomi, uh, because of her pain in chapter number one, she changes her name because of all that she suffered, because of all that she's experienced, because of the devastating loss 
that she has incurred, she says in verse number 20, call me not Naomi. Now the name Naomi, it means pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Instead, she says, call me Mara. The name Mara means bitter. It means uh, desolate. It means sour. It means sad. She says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Now, I want you to call me bitter. For this is why, for the Lord, the Almighty, hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi? Why are you saying I'm happy? Why are you saying I'm joyful? Why are you saying I'm pleasant? I'm none of those things. Seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. Naomi goes from Naomi, meaning pleasant, to Mara, meaning bitter. We could say this in the course of chapter number one. She becomes a bitter woman. When we read the idea, the topic of bitterness in the Word of God, we find that there are three sort of truths that arrest our attention about bitterness. Bitterness, number one, burdens us. You'll never see someone that is bitter whose uh, burdens are lighter than they would be if they were joyful. Oftentimes, we sort of view uh, bitterness as a sort of drug or anesthetic. We view it as something that when we yield to our bitterness, it will comfort us. It will make us feel better. We'll feel vindicated. We'll feel justified. But can I tell you, when you yield to bitterness, you ain't going to feel better. You're only going to feel bitter. It's not going to make it easier. It's only going to make it harder. The troubles of this life are made no easier by bitterness. You're still going to have troubles no matter how you face them. So you might as well face them the best way. Bitterness burdens us. I would say, number two, bitterness bankrupts us. Bitterness robs us of some things in our life. Uh, the joy that we enjoy in the Lord. And by the way, the book of Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is our strength. We can't, if we can't be happy in the Lord, we're going to be very weary very soon. Uh, it robs us of our faith. When we're bitter, it's hard to trust in the Lord. It robs us of our prayer life. When you're bitter, you'll rarely pray. And when you do, you won't get much praying done. Bitterness bankrupts our life. It, 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 it reaches off of us. Everything good, everything valuable, everything fruitful, everything. It bankrupts us. It robs us of our joy, strength, and fruitfulness. But then there's another thing that I want you to notice this morning. And it's this that interests me chiefly. Bitterness blinds us. You know, when you're talking to someone that's bitter, you can usually tell it right away. We can discern bitterness in a person's life because they often have an irrational or disproportionate anger towards people or circumstances. Have you ever met someone and they've just unloaded on you about something? I don't mean towards you, but you sat down at a bus stop and you started talking to somebody. This happens with politics every two seconds nowadays, don't it? You sit down, you talk to somebody, and they'll, they'll begin to sort of share their sad story with you, and all of a the sudden they're angry, and they're raging and railing against this or that or whatever uh, oppressive influence they believe on them in their life and has destroyed their hope of happiness. And pretty soon, it's not hard to tell who's bitter because their anger is disproportionate. It's irrational. It don't make sense. They are consumed by their bitterness. Can I tell you, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that bitterness, when it enters into a person's life, it springs up. It's... Now, let me go ahead and say this. I was going to say it later, but I'm already here. I might as well say it right now. Uh, don't think for one moment that bitterness is always something that is glaringly apparent in a person's life. We think of bitterness as a large cast a shade over everything near. Can I tell you that very often bitterness, as the book of Hebrews says, is just that root of bitterness. It ain't sprung up yet. You might be sitting here today saying, Preacher, that's good. You're preaching on bitterness. But I in here and I'm happy. I'm fine and everything. Can you really search your heart and ask yourself, is there any seed of bitterness, any root somewhere towards some person or towards the Lord? Bitterness has the ability to blind us. When we see someone who is bitter, we see that they aren't seeing things clearly. We are bitter. We cannot see things as they truly are. When I read the story of Naomi here, I read a cautionary tale about the blindness of bitterness. When you let bitterness in your life, there are some things that it will rob you your perspective on. Let me notice three things this morning, then we'll be done. When we tell the story of Naomi, we could basically divide it into three categories. Her and her family go down into the land of Moab, and 
Everything seems pretty good in their life on the surface. There's famine in the land of Israel, but they leave there. They go down to Moab. And, and it just it sounds like the Bible uses the term sojourn. Sojourn is a Bible word for the idea of a vacation or maybe a little bit more than one. In other words, they're going for a long vacation. They're just going to go wait out the famine. They'll take a little time down in Moab, take in the sights, eat some good restaurants, and pretty soon they'll come back and everything will be perfectly fine. I'll tell you We don't control the matters that control our life. Very often we can say that nothing bad's going to happen, but we're not the one that gets to decide that. Whenever they go down into Moab, everything falls to pieces. The first thing we read about in Naomi's story is her brokenness. What were the things that led her to this frame of mind? She is a woman that when you come to the middle of this chapter, it's apparent her life is in pieces. She has no husband. She has no children. She's standing over three freshly graves that don't have to be there. She's got these daughters-in-law that she has no interest in. Her life is literally destroyed by the things that have taken place. Most people that grow bitter in their life, you can trace it back to a moment of brokenness. Most people don't grow bitter because everything's going great. Amen? Most people don't say, it's such a beautiful day, I think I'm going to be bitter today. Usually it's when problems arise in our life. What was it that caused her to experience brokenness? I would say, number one, that she was broken by the stress of life. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 a little closer. All seems to be going pretty well, right, in the family of Elimelech and Naomi. But if we look a little closer, we'll find out that things were not as good as they appeared. It says in verse number 1, that came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. Now on surface that may be casual. It may seem dry and boring, just historical statements that are made. But if we look a little bit closer, we will find out that not everything was paradise in the home of Naomi. Notice, first off, she's dealing with a famine in the land. You know, very often, life stress is incurred when want is experienced. Oftentimes, when troubles and sorrow and problems arise in our life, it just turns the heat up in our life like a pressure cooker. And enough of that can break a person if they go through it long enough. I thought about how this must have uniquely affected Naomi as the wife and mother in the home. And I thought about what Proverbs 31 says about a virtuous woman, about what a woman's heart should be and should desire. And it says down in verse 13 of Proverbs 31 about the virtuous woman, she seeketh wool and flax. It's a little hard to do in a famine, isn't it? Verse 14 says she bringeth her food from afar. A little difficult to do when there's no food anywhere to be found. Verse 15 says she giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. A little tough to do when there's no meat in the freezer. Verse 16 says that with the fruit of her hands she planted a vineyard. A little hard to do when there's no fruit to be had. In other words, we see the picture of a woman who is constantly faced with frustrations and setbacks in her life. You ever had one of those days where it just decided to rain wherever you end up? That's what Naomi's going through. She's going through a time when the things that would give her joy in her heart, the things that would please her, the things that would give her a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning have all been robbed of her. And now all she can do is sit around and watch her husband grow frustrated, watch her children grow skinny. All she can do, it's completely out of her control. And she's stressing and stressing and stressing over her helplessness. How do you fight a famine? How do you deal with with a lack. How do you deal with the want in the home? Undoubtedly, this compounded her stress. And then the Bible says, in light of that, that a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, men, I can see how you're picturing this transpiring. I can see Elimelech walk into the home and look at his poor darling wife who is in tears and frustrated and saying, now, honey, this isn't going to do. You've got to be joyful. You've got to have everything you want. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to blow this popsicle stand. We're going to go down to Moab, and we're going to be in good shape. Don't you worry. Daddy's got it all under control. That's how you read that, men. But can I tell you how most of the women in this room probably read that? They pictured a downhearted, discouraged, dejected Limelech walking empty-handed into the home again. 
and weeping and complaining and discouraged over the fact that he'd worked, but there ain't no work to be had. Imagine the burden this laid upon her as a wife. She's got to watch her husband grow frustrated, discouraged, angry. I'll tell you this, man, there's nothing gets a man in a worse mood than feeling useless. That ain't got no correlation to how useless they actually are, but nothing's more discouraging. Feeling as though I, I want to work, I want to provide for my family, but I can't. We're often reminded about the burdens that are laid upon the shoulders of men as they deal with those things, but can I just remind you for Naomi, uh, she was having to bear her own burdens and Elimelech's. She was dealing with the frustrations of her husband. Her home was not a harmonious one. And then the Bible says this in verse number two. It says they came into the, uh, in verse number two, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. Uh, me and my wife have had, uh, two, uh, children and, and, and we, we did not pick what you'd call conventional names for them. The older one's named Lawrence. That's a little conventional. Like it's an old school name, Lawrence. And we named him after a, uh, after, uh, my uncle, after his great uncle. And then we named the, the littlest one, uh, Bruce Schofield. So he's named after his papa on one side and then a great, great grandfather on the other side. And, 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 but I'll tell you this. When we was looking through all the baby books, we never found Malon or Chilion. I don't know. I, I challenge you. Search on Facebook. See if you can find someone named Chilion later. You'll probably do it. It's not a common name. And even in Bible days, it was not a common name. But as is often the case with names in the Bible, these names bear great significance. And the names Malon and Chilion, they had a meaning. Malon literally means sickly or weak. Chilion literally means pining or wasting away. Now, I don't know why you would imagine a mother would name her children this, but I would imagine she probably named them that because that was the condition in which she first saw them. Probably these children were of weak constitution, had health problems, had, had physical problems, and she named this, bespeaking the fact, maybe hoping that it would somehow ease the path ahead of them, that people would understand that these are children that have problems and challenges and, and difficulties. But imagine this woman. Now, here she is. The pantry's empty. Her husband's gone a moment. And now she's got two sick kids that she's dealing with. Say, preacher, that sounds pretty cold, pretty cruel. Yeah, life is sometimes. I'm sure she loved those boys more than life itself. But you can't tell me it was not a difficulty. You cannot tell me it was not a burden for her to have to care for these children that were constantly infirm, constantly weak, constantly sick. And all that combined is enough to a break a person. You know, you don't have to have some great tragedy come in your life. Just the steady drop of stress and discouragement can be enough to produce bitterness in a person. I've met people that was bitter and they hadn't had anything bad happen to them. They had had a bunch, a million little unfortunate things happen. But the steady drop fills the bucket and pretty soon they grew bitter. I think she was uh, broken over the stress of life. But then look at verse number two. Now, here this family is faced with a choice. They are in the land of Bethlehem, Judah. There's a famine in the land. And now they must choose what they are to do. Remember what Bethlehem, Judah is. It is the place of God's promise. It is the place of God's plan. It is the place of God's people. It was the only place for Jews. It was the only place for the people of God. And they now have a choice. Are they going to stay in the land? Or are they going to flee and try to seek help and refuge somewhere else? Well, the Bible says in verse number 2, that they came into the country of Moab and continued there. She was broken undoubtedly by the stress of life, but I see a second thing here that can break a person, and that's the sin of leaving. She walked out of the will of God. She walked out of the place of God. She walked out of the service of God and went down to a place of pagan darkness. Let me tell you something. Even if sorrow never comes in your life, if you let sin in your life, sin is enough to make you bitter and to break you. Consider for a moment their desertion. They had left the only place they were supposed to be. As far as we know, they didn't go down to Moab and start partying and carousing and, 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 and living it up. As far as we know, they went down and lived the same life in Moab that they had led in Israel. But can I tell you this? The same life lived outside of the will of God as in the will of God is not the same life outside of the will of God as it is in the will of God. What do you mean, preacher? Well, I'm saying you and I don't get to choose. 
We are to be where God desires for us to be. And we might say, well, this is what I want and this is what I desire. And I've never met a Christian that got out of the will of God that didn't swear to the preacher and the Sunday school teacher and God and everybody that they was going to keep living for God wherever they went. I'm sure they said the same. The problem was they were starting out with a step of disobedience. How can we hope for it to end in obedience when it starts in disobedience? Consider their desertion. Consider their destination. It's not as though they left and, and went to some other region of Israel. They went to a place where they knew there was no light. They knew there was no truth. They knew there was no revelation. Uh, in the book of Psalms, when describing the nation, you know what God calls Moab? calls it his wash pot, his trash can, where he washes out the dirty dishes, his his wash pot is Moab. It was a filthy place. It was a vile place. It was a wicked place. It was a godless place. That in and of itself is enough to break a Christian. The Bible says about Lot that when he was in Sodom, that every day he vexed his righteous soul with their ungodly deeds. Hey, listen, part of the reason that Christians are breaking is because we're living in a world and we've steeped ourselves in an environment where wickedness is constantly besetting us. On every hand. How can we expect to pour all that poison in our eyes, in our ears, in our mind, and it not affect us if we're indwelt by the Spirit of God? I consider their destination, but then I consider their delay. The Bible says they continued there. Down in verse number 4, we're told they dwelled there for about 10 years. You know, they never planned on that. But I don't know that I've ever seen anyone execute the plan of getting in and out of sin in the way they think they will. There's not a single person that gets involved in sin that don't say, I'm going to get in, I'm going to get in for a little while, and then I'm going to get out. They all say that, but I've never seen one do it the way they said they would. Most of the time we have to be driven out of sin through brokenness and through heartache. And certainly that was the case for them. Sin always keeps you wrong than you intend to stay. I think she was broken by the stress of life and the sin of leaving. But it, it, it wouldn't be fair to not notice the things that she experienced there as well. Verse number 3 says, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. She loses what has been the rock in her life, what has been the, 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 the foundation of her life. And the Bible says she was left uh, and her two sons. We don't know the ages of Malon and Chilion. They might have been men grown by that time. They, they take wives not long after this, but irrespective of their name, and some of you parents can give me an amen here, you don't ever quit worrying about your kids. And undoubtedly, these two boys, having whatever infirmities they may have uh, had to bear in life, they would look to their mama a lot to take care of them. So here is this woman, and she is now left alone with these children by herself. It says they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. It doesn't end there. The Bible says then in verse 5 that Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. I would say this, that she was broken by a devastating loss in her life. Sometimes a person who is otherwise faithful to the Lord will experience such a blow, such a devastating event, that it's enough in and of itself to break them. I don't want to get ahead in my message, but can I tell you this? It ain't a sin to be broken, but it's a sin to turn that brokenness into bitterness. Sometimes God has to break us to remake us in His image. And certainly she could have chosen to do the right thing. Notice what it says. It was a devastating loss, but notice the last phrase here in verse number 5. It says, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Think for just a moment about the poetic significance of that statement. Who is she now? She's no longer Naomi. She's just the woman now. Is she the woman with a husband and, and, and children and, and daughters-in-law and a happy home and a future and, and hope and joy and all those things? No. Now the only thing she is, she's not even Naomi anymore. She's just the woman who was left of her two sons and her husband. I would say this. It was a devastating loss, but it was a defining loss. By the end of verse 5, she's no longer Naomi, the happy wife and mother. She's now the woman who was left. She's not defined anymore by her blessings, but she's defined by her losses. You know, brokenness really can be defined in our life when the only thing that defines us is the loss that we've experienced. I've seen people go through things in life, and I'm not saying it should be easy to move past them. I'm not saying that I've had the ability to do it. 
But from that day forward, everything they experience is touched by the loss that they felt. This is the picture of this woman, Naomi. But now she has a choice. As I said, brokenness is not a sin. It's not wrong to be broken. Often we are broken as God seeks to grow us and develop us. And some people allow brokenness to make them better. I think about what the psalmist said in Psalms 119. There's three times that he talks about his experience of affliction. And listen to how he describes affliction in his life. He says in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Sometimes God's got to break us to break us of some things. Sometimes in our life, God brings sorrow and, and turmoil and heartache because it's the only way to get us to stay close to Him. I want to be like the psalmist later on when he said he wasn't going to be like the horse that was led around with bit and bridle. I don't want God uh, to have to drive me and whip me and, and scourge me me to do right, but if I'm being honest with you, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. My flesh is as rebellious today as it was the day that I got saved and every day before it. And my flesh doesn't want to submit to God. And so there's times God has to break and make me closer to it. He talks about how it kept him close. In verse 71, he says, it's good for me that I've been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. Hey man, we can get to the place in life and nobody enjoys their suffering, but when we get to the place in life where we can at least praise Him for it and we've got to a good place. The psalmist says, I see what God's doing in my life and I wish He didn't have to do it that way, but because He is doing it, I'm going to be glad at it. I'm going to rejoice in it. I'm going to determinately praise Him for what He's done. And then he says in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that Thy judgments are right and that Thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. So he goes from saying, I can see good in my affliction, to saying, I'm I'm glad of my affliction, to now saying, I can see why God couldn't do it through any way but afflicting me. That he's right in his judgments. That it was his faithfulness that brought this into my life. Let me say, heaven, that's how I want to face my problems. I don't always do it, but help me, God, to be able to face them and say, Lord, I didn't ask for this, I don't desire this, but you brought this into my life, and I'm determined to see you glorified through it and to rejoice in you no matter what may come. We can face our brokenness that way. We don't have to go the wrong direction, but sadly, others like Naomi allow brokenness to make them bitter. She could have used it as a reason to lean on the Lord, but instead she lets bitterness take root in her heart. Think with me for a moment about her bitterness. I told you a moment ago that that bitterness changes our perspective about things. And there are certain things, you can hear it by her own words, her own testimony. Her bitterness is borne witness to by several things that at least in her eyes she thought were true. What does bitterness look like in a Christian's life? When a person's saved, what do they look like when they are bitter? Well, notice her own words to give us a testimony. I would say, number one, that for her, here's what bitterness looked like. In her eyes, she had no favor from the Lord. Do you remember what she said in verse number 13 when she's talking to, to Ruth and Orpah? She says, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. That's interesting language, isn't it? All the time when we are carrying out a ministry or having some sort of event or maybe in your life as you're raising your children or or starting a new job, you'll always say things like this, I just want the hand of the Lord to be on me. We'll pray. We'll have our camp coming up in June. We'll say, we just want the hand of the Lord to be upon us. But she says the hand of the Lord came out and it didn't help me. It smote me. God retch out against me and turned His hand against me. What's she saying? She's saying, God didn't help me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. Often bitterness will manifest in the life of a person when they begin to believe and begin to accept and begin to embrace the false idea that the Lord doesn't love them. She felt, number one, that God was against her. In verse number 13, she says, He's working against me. He's just trying to hurt me. He's just trying to hinder me. Sometimes when bitterness takes root, we'll begin to view everyone as our opposition, including God. Well, God's just trying to stop me from being happy. He's just trying to stop me from doing the things that I enjoy. Down in verse 20, when she's talking to the people about her change of name, she says this, The Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She feels not only that God was against her, but she felt that God was angry with her. 
He said, God's not pleased with me. He's not happy with me. It's not like it was in days of old when He blessed and touched everything in my life. But now He's against me. And now He hates me. And now He's angry with me. And then, verse 21, she says this, I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. That interesting language. You used to have all these things in my life. And now I've got nothing. She said, God has abandoned me. In other words, she begins to say, God has given up on my life. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. If God cared about me, I wouldn't be going through what I'm going through. Can I ask you a question? Who has a better track record, your flesh or your heavenly father? <laughs> I'd say this. If God never did another thing for us other than Calvary, and He does things for us all the time, but if He never did another thing other than Calvary, that's enough to prove that He loves us and loves us eternally. But bitterness, bitterness changes our perspective. In her eyes, she had no favor from the Lord. Not only that, look at verse number 10. This is, uh, there's a little bit of humor in this, but there's some sadness in it as well. They said unto her, so Orpah and Ruth said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husband? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Ruth and Orpah say, we don't want to leave you, Naomi. We love you. We want to stay with you. We want to take care of you. And with bitter, biting cynicism, she looks at him and says, what for? Why would you want to go with an old, dying old woman like me? There's nothing left in my life. I don't have any sons that you can marry. I'm too old to get married. I'm too old to have children. And even if I did, would you wait around till they got grown? No. Quit being foolish. Turn around. There's no future with me. When bitterness seeps into a person's heart and life, not only do they begin to believe they have no favor from the Lord, but they begin to believe they have no future in life. Isn't it amazing how dark the clouds can get when we yield to discouragement and anger? All of a sudden, man, two, two weeks ago we was happy and joyful in the Lord, and now all of a sudden there's nothing to be joyful about. Uh, two weeks ago, man, we was planning, praying, excited about what God was going to do, but we let bitterness in our life, and all we want to do is climb in bed, pull the blanket over top, and wait for our heart to quit beating. We tell ourselves, you have no future. You have no hope. By the way, isn't her language interesting? She doesn't say, I'm too old to have children. She says, I'm too old to have a husband. Now, I can say with authoritative experience as a pastor, you don't get too old to get married. I've married lots of old folks. Amen? You don't get too old to be married. And she undoubtedly was too old to have children. But if you're too old to have children, you want a child, just get married. You'll have a husband. Amen? Here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. It was untrue when she said, I'm too old to have a husband. But you see, when we let bitterness seep into our heart, when we let the clouds smother us, then we begin to believe that there's no hope, there's no future, there's nothing left for us. She began to believe that she had no future in the Lord. But then notice what verse 15 says. This is probably one of the startling statements in this passage. It almost smacks you when you read it. Whenever she's talking with Orpah and Ruth, and, and Orpah and Ruth are saying, no, we don't want to go back, we, we, we want to stay with you. And, and, and finally she convinces Orpah to go back to Moab. That in and of itself is shocking. This woman is supposed to be a believer in the true God, and she convinces Orpah to go back to her paganism. Ruth refuses to go. She cleaves to her. And listen to what it says in verse 15. She said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. In her mind, she had no favor from the Lord. In her mind, she had no future in life. But in her mind, she had no faith left. She says, what does it even matter anymore? Just go back to your pagan gods. Maybe they'll treat you better than my God has treated me. You know, in our life, and, and, and I would say this, Naomi has more faith than she realizes. But one of the ways that the devil can hobble us in our life is getting us to a place where we feel like we are useless, used up, and God is done with us. That's what this woman feels at this moment. She's saying, God has no use for me. Why am I even following Him? Why am I even living for Him? Why am I even serving Him? 
This is a woman whom bitterness has destroyed. Notice bitterness not only destroyed her, it deceived her. Remember what she says at the at the close of this chapter. She says, call me not Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She says, I went out full and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. She says, the Almighty hath afflicted me. Now, there's a few problems with what she said. But can I tell you the main problem? It simply wasn't true. She went away full, I suppose, if one could say a husband and two sons are full. But she comes home again and she's not empty. She's got this little Moabitess girl in tow and she's going back to the place where God has a home and a hope and a future for her. But you see, that's what bitterness does. It blinds us to some realities. The only way the devil can keep you bitter is by blinding you from the blessings of God. If he lets you see how good God's been to you, it will drive out that bitterness. And so the only way he can keep you bitter is by pushing out of your sight all of those things that God has done and is doing in your life. Whenever she comes home, verse 22 says this, Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Now, I don't know about you, but if you look a little closer, you'll find a lot of the blessings of God in verse 22. She says, I came home empty. But she wasn't empty. There's just some things that she couldn't see. Notice, first off, that it blinded her to the unchanging God that she had. I don't know if you noticed this. This is an interesting dynamic. She comes, her and Ruth, and walk into the city. And everybody starts, they recognize her, they know her, they see who she is, and they say, is this, is this Naomi? Where's your husband? Where's your sons? Where's, where's grandchildren, Naomi? Is this, is this Naomi? And she says this, call me not Naomi, call me Mara. Do you know that's the very last time in your King James Bible that the word Mara is used? She tells all these people, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And nobody takes her advice. Everybody just starts calling her Naomi. Can I tell you who also doesn't call her Mara? The Holy Ghost. You go through the book of Ruth and it's the very next verse. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She's, she's, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to diminish what she is experiencing, but she's pitching a fit, right? We've all done that. Oh, she's pitching a fit. I'm done. God hates me. Everything's terrible. Everything's falling apart. Don't even call me my name anymore. Just leave me alone. Get out of my way. Pull the blanket up over my head. Leave me alone. In verse number 22, the Holy Ghost says, So Naomi returned. Boy, I'm glad that God's mood is not determined by my mood. The Bible says every perfect gift and every uh, every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God don't wake up on the bad side of the bed because He never slumbers nor sleeps. He's the Lord God who changeth not. And I'm glad even when I'm having a hard time, He's still on the throne. I, I, I'm glad for Naomi. She wants God to give up on her. It'd make it easier for her to give up on God. But God refuses to give up on her. God says, I'm not going to yield to your despair. I'm going to continue to be what I've always been. She thought she had messed up too bad and gone too far. She's a broken, bitter woman that God had given up on in her eyes. But she sees herself that way, hopeless and damned. But God never calls her Mara, never yields to that. Never, all through the book of Ruth, the Holy Ghost only calls her Naomi. God's feelings towards her never change because he never changes. She said, God don't love me anymore. God says, are you done, Naomi? I'm glad when I pitch a fit on God and say, oh, God don't love me no more. I'm glad you don't change nothing about how much God loves me. So she was blind to the unchanging God. Not only that, the Bible says, so Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her. You can imagine, have you ever had someone give you what's called a backhanded compliment? Have you ever had someone insult you like you weren't even standing there? Imagine Naomi doing this. Naomi comes in and says, oh, life's terrible. I went out full and I came home empty. I ain't got nobody. Nothing in life worth living for. I got nothing I love. I got nothing I care about. And there's Ruth standing back there going, excuse me? I just followed you back from Moab, by the way. 
But you see, that's what bitterness does. It blinds her, not only from the unchanging God, but from the unnoticed gift. She couldn't see the precious thing that God had given her. Oh, you'd be amazed if in the throes of your bitterness, you'd force yourself to sit down and take inventory of the goodness of God in your life. You'd find all kinds of things that the devil has swept under the rug and stuffed in the back of the closet and tucked behind something else to hide from you so that you don't remember how good God is to you. She begins to notice this, this gift. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Ruth chapter 4. Verse 13, this is after Boaz and Ruth. The Bible says, so Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, now there ain't nothing that any woman likes more than a baby. And there ain't nobody that likes a baby uh, uh, more than a young woman other than an old woman. Amen. So here she is now with this beautiful baby grandson. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. Listen, for thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. This was the testimony of those gathered around Naomi by the end of the chapter of the book of Ruth. They said, God gave you more than he took from you, Naomi. It didn't look like it at the time. And by the way, this isn't something God did after her declaration of bitterness. This is something God had already done. She already had a daughter-in-law that loved her that was better to her than seven sons. But in her bitterness, she could not see that. And it's amazing in our bitterness the things that we can ignore that God's done. I, I see th that she was blind to the unchanging God, the unnoticed skip. Look at the next phrase. It says, and they, uh, it says, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. I see that she ignored or was blind to the undeserved grace that God put upon her. I'll tell you how I would have done uh, Naomi and, and Ruth. If I had been God, I would have left them to rot down in Moab. I would have said, you had a choice. You bailed on me. You gave up on me. You left me. So why should I go down hunting for you in Moab? And I remind you, verse number 6 says that word somehow, somehow reached Moab that God had given bread to His people in Bethlehem. God gave safe passage to Naomi and Ruth as they traveled a perilous highway from Moab to the land of Bethlehem. And by the promise and providence and patience of God, they walk into Bethlehem one day. And I say this, they didn't deserve that. But don't none of us deserve the grace of God. In our bitterness, we forget about not just all that He's done for us, but all that He should have done to us, but did not because He is a merciful God. You say, preacher, it's bad. It's bad. You don't understand. The things I'm going through, it's bad. Imagine how bad it would be without God. It could be a lot worse than it is. She uh, didn't notice the, the uh, grace. And then notice what it says, last phrase. I like this. It says, they came to Bethlehem. In the beginning of barley harvest. What did her bitterness blind her to? Well, to the unchanging God that she had. To the unnoticed gift, Ruth. To the undeserved grace. But I would say this, it blinded her to the unharvested grain that was around her. Now, let me be a little fair to Naomi here. I don't know that Naomi should have been able to guess what God's plan was. None of us can ever guess what God's plan is. But here's what she could have done as an Israelitess, as a woman that knew God's track record. She might have said, I don't know what God's plan is. But she then could have said, but I sure enough know that he has a plan. But as she's walking in, large fields, tall stalks of barley growing around her, she could have never dreamed of how the providence of God had dovetailed her, her brokenness, her sorrow, and her future together into that moment. If you're not familiar with the book of Ruth, the very next chapter involves Ruth going out to glean in a barley field. When she goes, she happens, because there ain't no just happening when you got a God sitting on the throne. She happens upon the field of a man by the name of Boaz. Boaz will become her future husband and will be the one that gives Naomi her joy and happiness back in her life through the birth of his and Ruth's little baby boy. But she couldn't have guessed that. And she walks right past a key component in the plan of God in her life and never even notices that God has been working the whole time. You ever seen in, in one of them in one of them movies where they'll do a split screen? You know what a split screen is? 
And they'll have, on one side, these things are happening in this place. And on this side, these things are happening at the same time in a different place. And it's meant to give you perspective. But let's do a little split screen. Can we do that? Picture this split screen with me. In the land of Moab, Naomi weeps at the graves of her sons and her husband. In Bethlehem, clouds begin to gather and rain finally begins to fall on the parched ground of the land. In Moab, bitter and defeated, Naomi decides to go home and begins to pack her meager belongings. She's done with God. She's done with Moab. And in Bethlehem, a sower goes into an early morning field and begins to cast seed on rich, dark earth. In Moab, Naomi and her daughters-in-law weep on each other's shoulder, and she begs them to turn back. Girls, there's no future. There's no hope with me. Just turn back and look for what life you can. And in Bethlehem, sprouts of fresh growth begins to spring up in a barley field. One morning, as Naomi and Ruth walk into Bethlehem, a man named Boaz calls to his reapers and tells them to sharpen their blades. Today is the first day of barley harvest. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this. When she was standing at those graves in Moab, she could have never guessed that God was already sowing a field in Bethlehem. When she was standing there in her brokenness and her bitterness, thinking there was no hope and future for her, God was already lining things up for the promises that he was going to keep in her life. You know what the bitterness in our life blinds us from? It blinds us from the fact that though we know God always has a plan and his plan is perfect, it forces us to, to doubt God's plan. She could have never guessed. I guess you and I could have, have never guessed. She could have never imagined the plan that God had designed. We can't guess God's plan for our lives either. We can, however, look in the Bible and look in our past and see that God always has a plan. We can trust him in his plan even when it's not easy. How valuable is that bitterness to you? Have you wrapped it like a blanket around you? Have you built it like a wall around your life? How valuable is it to you? Can I tell you this? It'll destroy you if you hang on to it. But you know what you ought to do? You ought to give that bitterness up to the Lord. And you'll find that if you'll give him the bitterness, he'll give you a blessing in return. He'll give you your joy in your life. He'll give you peace in your life. He'll give you purpose in your life. You have to choose. Naomi is a woman who let bitterness take root in her life. Thank God there came a day when she said, I'm done with this bitterness and I'm ready to accept the Lord's blessedness. What are you going to do this morning? Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. There could be some in this room that want to pray for somebody in their life that they know is in the throes of bitterness. And you might say, preacher, I, I believe I'm in a right place with the Lord. I don't believe I have any bitterness in my life, but I know somebody, my heart's burdened for them. They've let bitterness set in. They're an angry person. They, they, they've turned their back on the Lord. They've let it destroy their joy. And I want to pray for them. Why don't you slip out of your seat if that's you. Come down and bow your head and heart and lift their name up to the Lord. Some are coming even now. Who else would come? Why don't you slip out of your seat and come? Hey, listen, we ought to pray for those that are in the throes of bitterness, that are in the bonds of bitterness. We ought to ask God to soften their heart, deal in their life, to show them, to break those chains, to show them they don't have to live that way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.